0: This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, episode 58, Bias. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Here's what I have for you this week. I've been preaching about wineskins and how our attitude can directly affect the gospel's attempt to change us. I've been reading the Second Incarnation, a theology for the 21st century. The question is, do we really need one? I've been hearing polls being quoted everywhere by everyone and for every purpose. I'm inclined to ignore them all. I've been playing Coloma, a great example of a game that's just not for everyone, and that's okay. Let's start what I've what I've been preaching. Luke chapter five, beginning in verse number thirty-seven, reads thus. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put in fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking the old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. Mark and Matthew have similar readings of this parable that Jesus tells, and the companion, the one about taking a piece of a new garment and patching it onto an old garment. The point is that New things deserve new packages. In our culture, we keep wine in glass bottles, which do not age, at least for practical purposes. And so it's a little lost on us. But back in that day, and you may be aware of this, wine was kept typically in goat skins And as the wine would age, it would have a chemical effect on the skin, which wasn't that big of a deal because the skin was new and the wine was new and they would age together. And by the time the processes had more or less finished with the wine, the skin had stretched out uh, to an appropriate level, but it was still capable of holding the liquid. It would not burst. If you took a used skin and asked it to go through the same process again, it would burst as Jesus indicates here. The point that he's making is that we, as participants in the gospel, need to be prepared to reevaluate the package that we are putting God's things in, and this is especially pertinent in the first century for the Jewish community who thought they knew about God, who thought they knew about God's will for them, but were due for a big wake-up call. That's why Jesus was so such a paralyzing or a, a polarizing figure, rather. Among the Jewish community there, many really were drawn to him because he had all the trappings of a prophet, but prophets didn't talk like Jesus talked. They didn't carry the message that Jesus carried, at least that was the, the perception. The Jews had a very clear, a very distinct idea, especially those who were in power, those who were accomplished in the things of this world. Men like Nicodemus, for instance, in John chapter 3. They had a very clear view of what the gospel was going to be when it arrived, what the kingdom was going to be, and the king himself. And Jesus did not fit those preconceived notions. And so they burst, as it were. And this took Jesus ultimately to the cross, which, of course, accomplished God's purposes. God was in control of the entire thing. But he is warning them, and really, by extension, he's warning us that we need to be prepared to challenge preconceived notions of what the gospel is and what the gospel should be. And that is a message that is true today as much as it ever has been. Because today also, people have a very predetermined idea about who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about, especially if someone has not necessarily spent a whole lot of time reading the Bible. Uh, But that's not necessarily the case. There are people who are steeped in religion, steeped in Uh, uh, Christian culture, as it were, and still have a great deal of difficulty wrapping their minds around some of the most basic concepts of what the gospel is all about. Those, It's easy for me to pat myself on the head saying, I'm getting it right, but I look at the Bible and look at concepts like baptism, for instance, and concepts of grace and obedience and how they're intertwined. And all kinds of other things that we could talk about. And it seems clear to me what Jesus is trying to get us to do. And there's no apparent contradiction. There is no trouble in applying all of these things. But someone comes in from a different point of view who disagrees with me, maybe. And oftentimes in my conversations with them, it goes like this. I'll point out a passage of scripture that does not seem on the surface, at least, to conform to their notion of things. And they'll just reject that. I'll just ignore it. So well, but see this passage over here, et cetera, et cetera. And what they're saying is you're telling me something I didn't already know. And I want to be clear about this. I am not any kind of infallible purveyor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no such person. If anyone claims to be such, he's a liar. Don't listen to him. I'm not that kind of person. That being said, I am persuaded very strongly of my convictions, and I'm convinced that the Bible is teaching a certain thing, and that is what I am trying to teach. If I'm mistaken on that, please let me know. I believe that I'm honest enough to notice any kind of problem that I might have and to make correction where it may be necessary. Some people aren't like that, though. Some people, and, and it's not a personal kind of thing, I, I bear no animosity, but it's clear in the conversation that they are not interested in progressing in their knowledge. They're not interested in questioning things. Their wineskin has already been stretched as far as it's going to stretch, and it's not going to stretch any further. I want to challenge your thinking a little bit with regard to the gospel, especially if you come from a a tradition where churches are seen as being uh, basically charities. Jesus said himself, the poor you have with you always, he rejects this notion that his body is a charitable organization. The idea that it's a a youth center, as it were, it's where the young people go to hang out in a safe environment, maybe find somebody special. Matthew chapter uh, 11 and verses uh, 27 and following, where he says, come to me. Uh, all you who are weary and heavy laden, those are the ones who are supposed, supposed to come to Jesus. Chapter eight, uh, chapter 19, verse 14, suffer the children, come to me. Come for spiritual purposes. Come to me, he says. Don't come to other Christians, as it were. Come to me. That's who the gospel should be going out to, those ones who are looking for Jesus. It's not a political entity either. It's not some kind of arm of, of social change. It was never intended to be such. Jesus rejects such things and says we need to be laying up our treasure in heaven, not on the earth. Matthew 6 and verse 20 and 21 tells us that. If you are thinking that the church is in that kind of zone, I will concede that there are aspects of the gospel that lend themselves toward that, especially for individuals. But the idea that the body of Christ was given for such things is just not true no matter what you may have heard, no matter what you have always believed, re-examine the gospel. I think you're going to find that it is a spiritual organization. It is a spiritual message that is intended for spiritual people to accomplish spiritual goals in the service of the king. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. I had different thoughts in mind when I was preparing this podcast, but when I was working on the segment for Wineskins, I was caused to remember The Second Incarnation by Rubel Shelley and Randall Harris, and I took the opportunity to review the book. I didn't read it in its entirety, but I read it back in 1992 or 1993 when it was was first published, back when I was just a little bitty baby preacher. And I I remember the gist of it, and I remember my attitude, and judging from the way I highlighted the book, I have a pretty good idea of how I approached the book, like I did a lot of things when I was a little bitty baby preacher. Uh, It was a rather shallow attempt. What I thought being a preacher was in certain situations, the reproving and rebuking part anyway, was to find people who were in error and grab some of their quotations and take them out of their context and uh, declare victory over the straw man that I had built. Well, my approach has changed somewhat over the last 30 years, and I don't apologize for that. I think we're doing better work, or I'm doing better work with regard to these things. I still object to the things that are said and some of the things that are not said with regard to their book, with regard to the Second Incarnation. I, I had grave reservations about where this kind of philosophy was leading, and the last, whatever, 25 years, almost 30 years now, uh, since then has has fleshed out my, my fears. And, and I think this is a big part of the problem, that people have gotten away from what they deridingly call pattern-based theology in favor of what they call a Christ-centered theology, or ecclesiology, actually, is the term that they use. Uh, I really hate it when highfalutin preachers use big words. I, I try very hard not to do that. Uh, I feel like I'm being talk down to as, or we're intelligent. You need to listen to what I have to say. Well, they may very well be intelligent. I don't doubt that these men are more educated than I am. And and I've been wrong before. Maybe I'm wrong again. But I don't think I am. And I certainly don't think that I'm wrong with regard to Contrasting a pattern based theology and a Christ centered theology. I see no reason in the world to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because we want to be Jesus centered doesn't mean we don't follow the pattern that God has given us. God has always required his people to follow a pattern, whether it's building the tabernacle in the Old Testament, Exodus talks about that, the Hebrew writer refers to it the idea of of building according to the pattern there's always been a pattern there's always been a way that god wants us to operate and sometimes that pattern is difficult to determine sometimes it's difficult to implement i don't doubt that i i'm sure that's the case i struggle with that myself but that doesn't mean there isn't a pattern that doesn't mean there isn't a right way and i fear that this so-called Christ-centered theology basically boils down to an idea of determining somehow or another in some subjective way what the important parts of the gospel, what the Jesus-centered parts of the gospel are. The uh, the authors focus on baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is great. I think those are very biblical concepts. But they stop short of saying, as far as I can tell anyway, if you don't get baptized, according to the Bible, you're not going to be saved or you, the Lord's Supper must be partaken of in a, in a New Testament context the the book is actually quite shallow on with regard to application and i wish that there were a a 25 year anniversary edition as it were maybe i don't think there is as far as i know in terms of putting this into practice in the actual 21st century what does this mean regarding abortion what does this mean regarding homosexuality or transgenderism or postmodernism in general all these kind of things that are very vital issues central to our life in the 21st century how's the church supposed to handle that well according to the authors as far as i can tell and forgive me if i'm taking them out of context again here as far as i can tell it's just well let's make sure we center on jesus and everything that we do in jesus name according to this very fundamental understanding well Our theology will will cross boundaries and cross what they call denominational lines, et cetera, and, and bring everybody under the same umbrella. Well, I'm all in favor of including as many people as we possibly can in the gospel message. But it has to be done in God's way. God is the one who holds the umbrella. God is the one who determines who's saved and who is not. And... The way that we find out whether we are saved is by examining the pattern, the pattern that's given to us. And by the way, that's not a first century concept or a 20th century concept. That is a God concept. It has always been the way that he deals with his people. There has always been an example for us to follow. There's always been a pattern for us to build upon. The pattern that Paul gave to the the Philippians. Philippians 4 verse 9 talks about the things you saw and heard and have seen in me. Practice these things, he says. Do what I told you to do. Do the things that I did myself. Follow the pattern. The things that John wrote, he tells his audience in Second and Third John both, verses 9 through 11 in both passages. This is what true doctrine is. This is what you do with people who do not hold to that doctrine. It was once for all delivered to the saints, the text says in Jude, verse 3. We need to respect that pattern. And after all, since Jesus is ultimately the pattern, he is our example, 1 Peter 2, verse 21, then surely following after the pattern and following after Jesus should be a harmonious concept. We ought to be able to put these things together very easily. The problem is it's difficult. The problem is it leaves certain people out. We get uncomfortable with that. It challenges our biases. We understand that. But we have to find a way to fight through that. We have to find a way to accept God's word instead of our own word. Just because this is a difficult thing for us to do doesn't mean we don't have to do it. Paul says that we're going to get help with this, by the way. If anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Just keep striving toward that standard, he says, Philippians 3, verses 15 through 16. We can do this. We can find the unity that the Spirit provides for us. Philippians chapter or sorry, uh, Ephesians chapter four and verse three, we can find that unity. We will have that unity if we follow the spirit, if we are led by the spirit, Romans eight, verse 14, and only the spirit, not your preconceived notions, not what daddy told you, not what the preacher, not what the podcaster says, but actually what the Bible says. If you will listen to that and follow that, and that only, the way to accomplish this pattern in your life and the life of the local church will be realized. God will see to it. Don't let some fast talking writer tell you different. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Anybody else tired of hearing about polls? I, I have gotten to the point where I don't listen to polling data at all anymore. And the tragedy is I think polls are a very interesting concept. I think that finding out what's out there, how the people are thinking, what the trends are, I think that's a legitimate thing. I believe that good can be accomplished by that, but not by the way we're using polls these days. These days, it's pretty clear that the biases, whether they are of the pollsters themselves or the people who are reading the news or the people who are consuming the news, whatever preconceived notions are out there are just being reconfirmed by these polls. Sometimes the polls themselves are flawed. Clearly, you can just look at the question and know that these were conducted specifically to get a particular result. Uh, One poll may be, uh, are you in favor of killing babies? Versus another poll that says, do you support the reproductive rights of all women? And be the same question, the same poll, and get dramatically different results, of course, because they were supposed to get different results. That's Fault of the pollster. Now, sometimes it's not the pollster. Sometimes everything is done fine, but they're administered with bias. The people going out and asking the questions are asking them in the wrong way. It's it's a scientific fact that if you go out there with the idea that you're going to get a yes answer to the question that you're asking, you get yeses. And if you're expected to get a no, you get no's. The way the poll is administered actually helps form the results. Sometimes the sampling is poor. If People are are astonished that the idea that 800 people could reflect the opinions and and feelings of 330 million Americans, that's not statistically invalid. That is a a reliable method if you do it right. But if you just do like I did for a high school project, go out to the mall and and wait for 800 people to come and talk to you, that's not a statistically valid sample. That's not going to give you reliable results. Some of the problems with the media reporting inconsistently, you see the same poll trumpeted on this network versus that network with completely different headlines, completely different spin, because they're seeing what they want to see in that instead of actually reporting the news. Basically, all of it boils down to this. We don't have any confidence in polls anymore, nor should we. I think any reasonable observer is going to retreat from the idea that polls are telling us about life. Polls are not telling us about the world. They're only telling us about ourselves. They're telling us how we are looking at the world, which hopefully we already understood. We don't need a poll for that. I say all that by way actually of encouragement rather than discouragement. There is a way to turn these lemons into lemonade. If it is in fact impossible, for practical purposes, to accurately poll society, maybe it's better for us to not even try. And I especially mean this with regard to spiritual things. Rick Warren made made a, a lot of a lot of headlines, as it were, in spiritual circles when he wrote the Purpose Driven Church and talked about how when they established Saddleback Church in California, they they went out and polled everybody. What kind of church did, did you want? Well, I'm sure they were motivated to find out exactly what the people wanted and they gave them exactly what they wanted and it turned out to be a big success. Well, if you want to give the people what they want, you need to have an accurate count, an accurate measurement. But what if the people don't know what they want? Or what if they're gonna want something different tomorrow? Or what if what they want, more importantly, is not what God wants for them? Isn't it better in the big picture to just say, you know what, this is a time to be authentic. Instead of giving the people what they want, let's give them what God wants from us. Let's simply be the Lord's church, be the body of Christ. To a certain degree, yes, absolutely adapt to your surroundings. Paul himself said, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, he became all things to all men. Blend into your surroundings to a certain degree, as much as a Christian can. Adopt the local culture, if you can, within the confines of God's morality and and God's law. Absolutely. But do not lose yourself in your culture. Do not become something you were never intended to be. Simply be honest and straightforward and godly and God-centered and Christ-centered in your approach. Simply hold to the truth. Thy word is truth, Jesus prayed in John 17, 17. Believe that. Believe that God's truth is good enough. And I promise you that if you are, in fact, authentic, if you truly hold to God's word and God's plan, the people who are looking for that will find it. And the people who are not looking for that are going to find it too. They may reject it, but they were always going to reject it. There is no downside to being authentic. There is no upside to changing, to fit changing world, changing times, different morals, different lifestyles and such. Stick to God's truth. God's truth will see you through. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But, if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world. And perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. Over the last year or so, the Hammonds family has bought three board games designed by Johnny Pack. All of which are Western in their theme, which I love. We'll talk about Sierra West and A Fistful of Meebles maybe another time. I want to talk about Coloma today. In fact, I don't really even want to talk about Coloma today. I want to talk about Coloma as an example of the kind of game that Kylie will not play. Coloma is is a beautiful game. Put it on the table. It looks fantastic. Great artwork. Interesting uh, devices. There's one... uh, little trick in the game where there's a magnet inside of the actual board. There's a magnet also in the dial that goes in the board and changes from round to round, And so it just kind of slips into place and stays there like that. I've never seen a board game do this. It's real. It's just fun to play with, let alone uh, to play. And, and as is always the case, I'm very excited about this and I'd like to find somebody besides Tracy to play with. And we're sitting down playing the game and having a good time. And Kylie comes up and looks at the game two seconds in, she says, that's a geek game. And it's done. It's over. Uh, she has in her mind this idea about what kind of game she is going to like. And if the game doesn't qualify in the first five seconds, it's never, ever going to qualify. Nobody's ever going to talk her into anything. And that hurts me where I live I don't hold it against her, but it does hurt because I'm evangelistic about more than just the gospel. I, I'm evangelistic about board games also, particular board games and the hobby at large. I, I like the idea of sharing things with other people, partly just because it's brought joy to my life and I want other people to, to partake of that also. And partly because word has it, Coloma's a better game at three or four players than it is at two. So having an extra player in the house would be great. Doesn't look like I'm gonna get that. I can live with that though, that's okay. Coming to grips with the idea that you're going to get a bad reaction for no particular reason is a very difficult pill to swallow in, in life in general, in the gospel in particular. Why can't they overcome their biases? Don't they realize what they're missing? That is a very frustrating position to be in. But we need to find a way to work past that. And so I'm going to use Coloma here as kind of a stepping off point to talk about the the bias that we see when we go out and talking to people about the gospel and the bias that we carry into our presentation of the gospel, by the way. The idea that everybody has to do things the way I do it or everybody has to respond in the same way or predictable way or whatever. I don't believe in a one size fits all approach to evangelists. And a lot of people do. A lot of people have a very set Locked in stone way of preaching, and it seems to work for them. And if God is glorified in so doing, then by all means go ahead. It seems to me, though, that that is contrary to to common sense and to to a pr- a proper treatment of God's word. Again, being all things to all men, that we talked about earlier in First Corinthians nine, verse twenty-two. I have an obligation to, as best I can. Present the true gospel in a way that is going to be receptive, and so I need to overcome the bias that I might have against the the truck driver or the motorcycle person or or the person who speaks a foreign language or whatever it happens to be. I can find a way to evangelize that person also, and that person can find a way toward the truth if they choose to do so. If the person is showing a uh, hesitancy because of of the the subject matter, as it were, well, that that's too hard for me, as it were. I can deal with that. I don't want to study Revelation. Then well, let's not study Revelation. Let's study something else. There is milk and meat. It's quite possible that if somebody doesn't want to study a tougher subject, then they probably shouldn't be studying the, the tougher subject. We'll study with some something a little bit more mild, as it were. You know, focus on the milk, even past the point when they should be developed into meat eaters, as it were, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, as the, the analogy goes there. Meet them where they are. If If they want to participate, but they're not... Pr- ready for a a heavy-duty dose of participation, then meet them where they are. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And if the gospel is rejected entirely, if the person says, look, I'm not interested in Jesus, I I don't want any of this, they may even be rude about it. Usually, in my experience, they haven't been, but what if they are? Well, the text is really pretty clear about that. This is not about you. This is about me, God says. There are some people who are not fit for the kingdom. They're not going to pretend like they're fit for the kingdom. In a way, it's easier that way than someone who's pretending, someone who's faking, who's going along there, the tares the in the field, as it were, and God's going to have to sort them out at the end of time. What we need to do is just, as Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 14 to the, the 12, as they went out, shake the dust off your feet. If the gospel did not find root in this particular place, that's okay. And and maybe shaking the dust off your feet has reference to not even carrying the baggage of failure behind with you, as we may define failure. Let it go. That was yesterday. We're going to move on now. Realize that it's not a personal thing. It's not about them rejecting me. It's about them rejecting the gospel and, by extension, rejecting Jesus. That's what God had to tell Samuel the prophet. Remember back when he was a judge over Israel and they wanted a king for Samuel 8, verse 7? They have not rejected you, you. They've rejected me, God says. I had a plan. They wanted something else. We'll go with that. We'll go ahead and let them have what they say they want. And no matter what happens, whether we get good news or bad news, whether there is a great deal of, of produce, a great deal of results or not, either way, we stay joyful. We continue to live appreciative and grateful for what God is providing for us here. Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, that uh, in every way, the gospel is being preached whether it's good news for me or bad news for me, the gospel is being preached, Jesus. And in this, I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I will continue to rejoice because good things are happening in the cause of Jesus Christ. If I don't get what I want in the moment, that's irrelevant. The only thing that really matters is, is God being glorified? And if God can be glorified in this way or in that way or some other kind of way, what difference does the specifics make? overcome our biases about what success looks like and accept God's will and God's plan for our life and find joy in it. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe if you have not already. Shares, ratings, comments, and questions are always welcome. Feel free to reach out to me on social media with any questions or suggestions. And watch my YouTube channel and our website, www.HalHammons.com, for articles, sermons, and notifications regarding other content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammons, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.